Africa. The world's greatest wilderness. No, 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 no. No, no, no. We are not just documentaries narrated by old British men. We will not be summarized to our national parks or our tragedies. We are not caricatures of emotionless characters. We might laugh, but we are definitely not a joke. Our dreams are valid. Our hopes are valid. And we will change because we must. This is a compilation of our tales, our conflicts, our challenges, our solutions, our means, our hopes, our cultures, our futures, and our lives. Welcome to Pod Save Africa. That is what the spirit world does. It affirms you. It validates you and your experience. It doesn't negate your experience. Mm. And as humans, we want to be affirmed. Right. Right? Because we know that we're inherently valuable, even when people say we're not. Right. We know that deep, deep in the recesses of our experience, we just know that we're made that way. And uh, and uh, not not to perhaps uh, switch switch gears a little bit, um, you know, more more on the, the the future of which for which you know we have perhaps a lot to be excited for, but you know, some some of the issues that we end up finding are uh, we feel like the fear of the past. There's too much of the past, and the, that of the past is too strong. And this idea that we just have to wait for our parents' generation or our grandparents' generation to die sometimes is almost depressing because if you if you're a twenty, twenty five, twenty six year old now, and uh, you know you've moved back to the African continent or you're interested in working in the African continent, um, but you see you see structures that that might uh, seem too difficult to uh, modify. Um, you know, what, what does that pose, especially when it comes to issues like, you know, political engagement, you know, people fear that, oh, I'm not the right religion, oh, I'm not from the North or from the South, I can't make any uh, change. You know, what would you say to us on, uh, you know, perhaps advice for approaching it or a mindset to have when, when looking at uh, the existing playing field? Okay. So, uh, Mr. Adirely. Yes, sir. Yes, uh, so uh, I, I hope what I'm going to say, and that's a very good question, by the way. Thank you. But I, but I hope you won't see my response as being a bit evasive. It's not intended that way. <laughs> I actually believe that uh, the evidence will suggest that the way you frame the question, right, mm-hmm. which is, by the way, um, a very popular idea empirically is just simply not the case. Mm. Right. That the evidence will suggest, I believe, and we need to look at this empirically, that mm. young people in African countries have come to stay and they're taking over. I see. Yes, 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 yes. 
how, how would you convince the uh, misinformed listener well, that this is the case? Well, I mean, let's just let let's just be a for one thing. For one thing, I think it's really very important to know that generational struggles are not new to this gen to, to now. There's always a struggle between the old and the young. That's happened forever. Yes. The way you frame this question, my generation framed the question with my parents' generation and my uncle's generation. So in a way, we're always raising the question, these old guys just hang around with their old ideas and they just simply don't want to go. Yeah. Because they just want to occupy the space forever. Mm-hmm. Um, the reason why we're posing the question that way is because we're, we're operating in a particular in a particular power orientation, for lack of a better term. We're thinking very much like power brokers. Okay. And if we cannot see conventional areas of power that is connected to the nation state, Hmm. and it's like, yes. Because we want to enter that process and become part of the problem. And we're saying these guys, they're closing the gates at us. They're not letting us in. Right. You see, we want to be a part of the new patrimonial structure that is in itself exploitative. Hmm. In other words, the same system that we denounce, we want to enter it. Right, and our inability to enter it. So we want to operate in that patronage and clientele system because we know it operates a reward system, a system that rewards its client handsomely. Right. We want to have access to those to those what? To those contracts also. Right. <laughs> we want to be the people who will be the carriers who would decide on those contracts hmm. on jobs that people will what, siphon up three quarters of the money to their pockets and their Swiss bank accounts and New York bank accounts. Hmm. We know that it's pro- it's rational and logical to do that. Hmm. It's fundamentally destructive. Yes, it, it doesn't right. vote for a better right. future. There's nothing irrational about political corruption. Hmm. Right? It's quite reason- logical. It's not reasonable, but people do it. So we're, we're saying to ourselves that if I want to be rich quick, mm-hmm. I need to have access to the frontier state and its agencies and instrumentalities. Right. I want to be the person who will now become, you know, a, a leader in, in a government, a state parastatal. Hmm. And these old guys, usually guys, and some women, right. they're sitting at the table and they're just not letting me in. Right. If that is the way people are thinking about power and governance, mm-hmm. right? But, but I want to encourage you, please, to think about that because, yes, it, it, it's relevant. To, but then to think about other areas, other areas where, where young Africans are making breakthroughs. Those are the areas where these old guys cannot touch. Right. And have no clue what's going on. Hmm. I'll give you one example in Nigeria. It has essentially transformed and inspired the black world, the African world, the African diaspora world. It's called the Nigerian film industry. I refuse to call it non-industry. Fantastic. 
the Nigerian it is film the industry. largest film industry in the world. Yep. It came out of the ashes of, econ- of neoliberal economic globalization. We know precisely when it emerged huh. in the late 1980s. Essentially, it's people denounced it. Denounced it we did too. Basically primitive and backward. Yep. But guess what? It is now multifaceted. Mm-hmm. It is incredibly innovative. That is true. It defines the essence of pop culture that is African and African diasporic. Hmm. It builds on all kinds of local, national, and transnational networks like we've never seen before. It's an inspiration that has taken the world by storm. It's a multi-billion dollar industry. The world knows very clearly. Yeah. Wow. And it has inspired Africa's ingenuity and creativity and African diaspora creativity the world over in the last 20, 25, 30 years. And it hasn't stopped yet. That's, that's good. It hasn't stopped yet. No economic recession can stop it. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's on the back of people's because effort people and engineering. It. They're young people. Yes, they are. They're young people in their 20s, in their 30s, in their early 40s. If you're more than 45, you have no place. You just sit in the in the background and watch. <laughs> They're defining new musical genre as we've never seen before. Mm. Spiritual as well as secular. Mm. They're making films at different levels for different audiences. They're Afropolitans, <laughs> right? Right. Yeah. Huh. I never expected to get that. They're everywhere. Huh. And so, so, uh, and look, they're some of the most amazing, their, their knowledge of an enterprise culture without mm-hmm. depending on the patronage system of a corrupt neo-patrimonial state, hmm. they innovate globally. I see. Globally. So, so and that's one area. Let me give you another example of another area where young people are making amazing breaks. It's business. called the telecommunication industry. Huh. Yes. They're kids. Sorry, I call them kids. Yeah, they're kids in their 20s and 30s. Right. And they're all over Africa, by the way. Hmm. Yeah. They're all over the place. I see, but I've generally always thought... In terms of new technology, in yeah. terms of social media, yeah, they're replicating what Western countries are doing and what people are doing in China and India. They're mm. doing the, the best they have. They're, mm. not, they're not staying back in Western countries. They have no use for Western countries anymore. Mm. Yeah. I see. I'm not saying... By the way, I'm, don't get me wrong now. I'm not saying there are no serious problems and limitations and challenges. There are. Yeah. So I don't want to paint this rosy picture. Well. But, I, but I also want to suggest that if we look at the evidence, the evidence will suggest, and it's compelling, that young people are making monumental breakthroughs. And I think that's... I mean, I can go on and on and on. How about in sports and managing sports? Please continue. Uh, I'd like to. I mean, global soccer, for example, football, Mm -hmm. right? 
I mean, Africans are consuming, young Africans as well as old Africans are consuming, they're playing the sport, boys and girls. Yeah. And they're paying attention to it. And they're investing in it. Mm -hmm. And it's connecting their worlds together globally. Yeah. Yeah. You know, there there are so many other... So I think the tendency is this. If we want to understand youth culture that is constructive and productive, and there are those areas, what we want to do is to look at those areas that are not stifled by the instrumentalities of the state. Mm. See, that's what my generation still controls and won't want to let go of. Right. There's no self-interest. We've been pushed out and scrimmage. (laughs) I mean, look, if you... you, go to most African countries, mm-hmm. this is neither good or bad. Okay. There are banks everywhere. Too many banks. That is true. I just got back from Nigeria. Every time I go to Nigeria, I go to Nigeria twice, at least twice, you know, a year. I have this wonderful opportunity, a gift to to help, uh, to pay some attention to my late mother's uh, elementary school in Ibadan, of which I'm incredibly uh, proud and humbled. Omolewa Nosri in primary school in Nevada, okay. which was founded in 1962. So that, wow. since my late mother passed away, I've been going to, back to that school twice a year just to to, to to lend some support. I see. And while I'm there, I just got back a few days ago. When you got in contact with me, I was on my way there. I see. When I'm in Nigeria, I'm just observing there are banks everywhere. Too many banks. Yes, I would agree. There's just too many banks. <laughs> okay. Too many banks. Branches of you drive two, three, two, three minutes is another bank. Right. Guess what? Who are the people running those banks? Old people? No. No. The young no. people. That is true. They're all in their thirties. That is true. But yeah, they're all in their thirties. They're young people running those banks, running those financial institutions. They're the ones who are running our money. <laughs> Fair enough. So, I mean, I don't want to go on and on and on. So, I don't subscribe to the idea that that we're not having a generational shift. We are. I see. And, and that process it has started a while ago. Huh. And the best places to look would perhaps be the places where the, the exactly. arms of the state are. It's just are. a matter of where we're looking. Huh. Yeah. I we're see. accustomed to looking at power in certain quarters. Right. That's my point. Yeah. All we need to do is to shift our focus. And we need to begin to think about power a bit differently. Huh. Thinking about we have to power. think about power as innovation, power as ingenuity, power as enterprise. I Not see. power as something that you want, you steal. Yeah. And you acquire for yourself. See, power is understood in the African context in terms of a power play, a power broker. The state is rapacious by its very nature. It's capricious. So what we want to do is to seize it so we can use its spoils for ourselves and enrich ourselves, even as we denounce it. Yeah. Because... It will reward us for the work we have not done. Right. But it reinforces the old cycle. It absolutely, absolutely. It's essentially the ways in which the 
agencies. You know, the, the, yeah. So in a place like Nigeria, for example, mm-hmm. every 10 years, every five years, there's going to be another discussion about restructuring. I yeah. don't know how many times Nigerians have been talking about restructuring. <laughs> it's, it's the current conversation. And every single time they talk about restructuring, right? Mm-hmm. They always talk about restructuring as though they're talking about it for the first time. They've never talked about restructuring before. Right. Somebody will remind us, well, eight years ago you were talking about restructuring. When they're talking about restructuring, what they're saying in effect is to say, okay, the power brokers that dominate the so-called five major geopolitical zones, mm-hmm. the core north, the middle belt, the southwest, the south, south, southeast. Right. It's the politics of neopatrimonialism. The politics of clientele and patronage, patron-client relations. I represent my people, Arewa, Odua, Biafra, Delta, so that we can have what is ours. Guess what? The vast majority of the people you claim to represent, they remain what? They live in objection anyway. Mass poverty, effectively. Yeah. So, who are we kidding? Hmm. Who are we kidding? Who are we kidding about this? I mean, are you, are you really talking about how you will restructure the economy in such a way that people with the talent and the enterprise and the commitment can hmm. be well rewarded for their creativity? No. I mean, in a country like Nigeria, where it's amazing potential, only one state of all the states in the Nigerian Federation is viable. Everybody knows that state. It's Lagos State. Yeah, that's true. That's it. There's no other state in Nigeria that is viable economically. And they've never been viable. And the reason why they're viable is very simple. Number one, rich people in Nigeria don't pay taxes. That's one thing. They don't. Yeah. They just simply don't. That is well known. Yeah. If you really want to live a good life and you have money, take that money to a place like Nigeria. Take it from, you know, and just go and enjoy it. Go and buy real estate in, in Lagos Island. Right. Right. So, in a way, people kind of know that. Huh. Uh, so, you're not generating revenue. Right. right? You're not creating value. The question: Supposing you're even generating revenue from income taxes, the people who are, you know, the the people who are supposed to be governing the country are going to steal the the revenue anyway. We right. kind of know that already. Right? Yeah. It doesn't matter whether they're civilians or or military guys. Right. Yeah. Right. Okay. So the structure and the system is made pretty much that way, and it functions that way. It operates that way. Number two. <clears throat> Where is the incentive to be creative? Hmm. To build an enterprise culture when you're waiting cap in end from what? Revenue from collection of rent from petroleum to come to your coffers. Yeah. Right? To pay your staff as teachers, as civil servants, and the like. So you're waiting for Abuja (laughs) to send you your one. Your money. Right. Everybody's hand out government. One Absolutely. Yeah. Whereas in Lagos State, because of Lagos' unique condition, Lagos is the only place, the 
dominant Nigerian, you know, region, Lagos Island and Lagos Mainland, that all Nigerians have to try to contest. Yeah. There's a lot of money in Lagos. Yeah. Too much money in Lagos. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, in Lagos, Lagos can generate its own revenue. Just yeah, by virtue of taxing institutions, you know, financial institutions. Yes. <laughs> you know, the ones, at least the ones you can see. Yeah, the ones that are harder to... Uh, the ones evade. that are easy to locate. You yeah. don't have to worry about the rest. Yeah. So Lagos, Lagos can... Lagos operates very much like a country in of itself. I see. Right? Lagos is the, is the hand call of Nigeria. Right. Lagos is the essence of Nigeria. Lagos is the reason why Nigeria will not break. Period. Hmm. Tell the I mean, tell the new Biafran people that it will not because of Lagos. Really, <laughs> I see. It will not. So they will uh, they will cause their confusion. Mm-hmm. To be sure, okay. they have no sense of history. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. they can rebel rouse as much as they want. Mm-hmm. And they can play on the emotions of young people who are disgruntled for good reason, right. who feel disenfranchised. Right? Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, at the end of the day, because we're all Lagos, that sleepy Yoruba town of the 19th century that the British invaded. Yeah. In the British, in the it now is the what the epicenter of Nigeria. Right. Huh. It is the epicenter of Nigeria. Nobody is leaving Nigeria because of Lagos. Fair enough. At least not anytime soon. I don't know about tomorrow. Not anytime soon. soon. Until right. we remove all the resources and the money in Lagos. Right. Yeah. Nobody is going anywhere. Look, all the richest people in Nigeria. They're in Lagos. <laughs> yes. If you see what I mean, yeah. they're Yoruba, they're Igbo, right. they're Essek, they're right. Ibibio, right. they're Kanuri, they're, house, they're, they're in Lagos. Right. They're there to contest Lagos to the last, you know, to the finish. Right. And yeah. They're it, not going to any any place. They're not moving any, they're not moving to any, any, any you know, they're not moving. I don't want to mention, yeah. Right. And they're perhaps an example. Lagos perhaps as such an example for an ideal or more far more ideal version of Nigeria itself. Huh. If, so anyway, right. I, sorry, I, I may have gone off tangent. No, no, I, I, that, that. my my students say this about me quite a bit that that tell me for an just going on and on and on. But anyway. And uh Well I think so so when when speaking more on um reality now one of the things i feel like has retained its uh has been a theme so far has you know we've discussed effectively one of what i'd like to call the two classes of nigerians um those who you know get to see a little bit of the world might have the money to travel abroad might school abroad um, might even just have the resources to go to, you know, relatively good schools within the country itself, have opportunity by way of their parents' influence and, and resources. But then there's another Nigerian who is pretty much used to living in what most Western countries would call abject 
poverty. And oftentimes, you know, as I've noticed, at least within my small, within my small group of people, um, because we're not living that reality, we, we often forget that it exists. And a lot of us come here with the view that, you know, because we at some point had proximity to it. For example, if you live in Lagos, um, as, as rich as Lagos is, you know, there are lots of poor people living in Lagos. Um, that's actually, I, I lived in a part of Lagos called Surulere, and the truth is that a lot of really, really poor people live, live there, even besides sometimes extremely wealthy people. Um, you know, how this innovation that we speak of, um, how do we start to carry that to the masses? Cause that, that, that really would, you know, that really is a sign of whether we're succeeding or not. Right. Um, the, the number of people we can bring value to, how do we transform, um, you know, innovation as a buzzword to, you know, actual innovation and disruption? Yeah. Yeah. That, that, if, if I have an answer to that question, that incredibly, difficult question, right? I I don't think I'll be doing what I'm doing now. <laughs> Fair, fair <laughs> enough. I'll be doing something else. Fair enough. Any economist mm-hmm. uh, who is, you know, who will tell you that they have a good answer for you, they're, they're really telling you a story. Mm-hmm. They're either uh, obsessed with their own ideological pretensions, mm-hmm. right? They're totally delusionary. Um, In the statements you made and the question that you posed, right, is a very, very deep crisis, not even a problem. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, it's, 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 it's enormity for me as a homeland. And there are times when as scholars, we have to be humble enough just simply to say, well, this one is too big for me to handle. This one is tough. Yeah, the subject of structural poverty, I call it an objection, is real. Yes. In African contexts, not just simply poverty. I call it objection. It's real. And it's terrible. And yes, it's a crisis. And we need to, as people of conscience, call it that. Yes. Yeah, I think the best thing we can do is just what you said right now. And that is, quite frankly, to mobilize all our imagination and creativity as young and old people and people of conscience as women and men, just to say, guess what? We know the scotch is right there around the corner. Mm-hmm. They're very much among the people who serve us 24-7. Yeah. Yeah. They serve when I'm in Nigeria. That's what they do. Hello. I apologize for interrupting your episode again. This is your host. And I'd just like to talk very briefly about the tragedy in Sierra Leone over the past couple of weeks. Um, a terrible tragedy happened when uh, heavy rains and flooding led to mudslides that have killed upwards of 400 people. Uh, mass burials have been undergone in Sierra Leone and uh, they need of urgent support to find the missing and to bury the dead. Um, I believe that we as African should come together 
and support our fellow Africans. Uh, I will put links in the description and the notes for supporting it. And I encourage you to pray for the country itself as it recovers from this terrible uh, tragedy and do all you can to reach out to your friends that are perhaps from that country and might be affected. Uh, thank you very much and uh, please continue your listening. drive us, they cook they our food, us. they clean they our houses, they wash they our clothes. Who are we kidding? Hmm. Who really are we kidding? 
we set up a couple of um, institutions and we feel in a way the private sector can do it. No, the private sector has never done education for ordinary people. That is what the state does. Yeah. Yeah. That's the responsibility of, I don't know of any country in the world that has done well where you've left the most essential goods and services to the private sector to what to create and to mm. nurture. Yeah. The private sector operates on the basis of what profit. profit. The market. It's about the market. Yeah. The poor have nothing really to pay. Yeah. So you can do your charity thing as much as you want and, and what? And cleanse your conscience. Mm -hmm. So you can go to church or mosque and pray. Betides. You're not even scratching the surface. Bottom line. Who are we kidding? Who are we kidding? Look, the great transformations in Western countries, all through Europe, North America, the United States, and Canada, in China, were built because of what? Of a national consciousness to transform the conditions of ordinary people. The national health system in Europe, in one European country, it, they're being denounced now as a bunch of social welfare projects, mm -hmm. or social democratic projects. No, no, they built an entire generation. They provided health care. They saved millions and millions of lives. The comprehensive secondary schools and elementary schools in Britain, in Scotland, in England, in Wales, in Ireland, in Sweden, in Denmark, in Germany, in Austria, they, are all, they were all run by the state. Yeah. In France, we know very well in this country, the epicenter of capitalism in the world. Yeah. The backbone of American educational system is not private. Yeah. It is very public. Yes, it's called the public school system. Yes. For all the arguments that conservatives and neoconservatives rail against its inefficiency, nobody has had the the good the nobody can ever think of what of undermining it. Right. If you want a healthy American community mm. where real estate is strong, where what? The community is safe, where civic values are what? Comprehensive and deep. Mm -hmm. Guess what? There's always going to be a good, strong elementary school or schools and a good, strong secondary school somewhere. Guess what? They're not private. They're public. Right. Yeah. Yeah. They may be supported in the margins by the private sector mm -hmm. doing good little charity humanitarian work. Fine. But they're really money collected from what? From taxes. They yeah. tax our property. Mm -hmm. Much of the money we pay to run secondary schools and elementary schools in the United States come out of what? Property taxes. That's true. Yeah. That is that is the backbone of this country. Anybody who tells you otherwise is just simply a liar. Hmm. The backbone of this country is not Wall Street. 
is America's public educational system. And yes, I emphasize public. <laughs> yes, public. Public. But it's also public and civic. It's not centralized. That's the difference. It's the public that the people who live in the community want watch over, nurture, build, invest upon, invest in. Because their children and their grandchildren go to those schools, right? Hmm. It's not coming from Abuja. Right. It's not coming from a central location. Exactly. That is the difference. Which always makes the whole system far less likely to ever fail. Absolutely. So, so, yeah, that is the kind of conversations about restructuring as an example that Africans need to be having. So if we really want to restructure our governance structure and system, that is, those are the kinds of things we need to engage in order to begin a process of engaging the real aspirations of the masses of our brothers and sisters who live in abjection. Hmm. We've done this before, by the way. So it's not as though we can't do it. Yeah. It's been done before. Most of our countries had fairly strong public... from now i feel like you know your discussion on perhaps education being and it's almost as cliche of education being the the great equalizer but it's, it's never been proved or said to be wrong um but yeah, you know I mean, yeah so, so so those are the kinds of i mean i i know i'm i'm responding to your question in a very right. backhanded way you know the the transforming 
a big changing a big problem such as the kind of I hate to say it obscene poverty that we see all around African social spaces, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's not going to happen overnight, but I think the first thing we need to do is really start a campaign. Maybe maybe a campaign. <laughs> yeah, just really to start a campaign, you know, you know, a campaign for the African poor. Huh. That'd be a good, yeah. And you'd be surprised how many people are. To lead such a campaign. Uh, perfect, perfectly fine. <laughs> so then, then look at um, you'd be yeah. you'd be surprised how many people are leading such campaigns in little bits. Uh, I know of people yeah, working maybe, on. Yeah, it's good to know they're doing it. I yeah. think maybe they need, but many of us were not hearing about it, so they need to step up the campaign, and we'll support them. So it's a, it's a, it's important to create a consciousness. That's the point I'm trying to make. Hmm. To really put a spotlight on it. To change the conversation and to make that conversation a conversation about the African poor and to call it just simply that and to define what it means, what objection means in real terms, in tangible, concrete ways, what it means for the next generation, what it means for the children of the poor. What it means for security, what it means for young people, what it means for the destabilizing impact of it, what it means in terms of, in terms of the tendency for all kinds of fringe groups like. to capitalize on objection. It's called Boko Haram. It used yeah. to be my type thing in the 80s, huh. right? So when people are really thinking and talking about the scourge of Boko Haram, Militant Islamicist groups in the age of terror in a post 9 11 world. The army of young people in northern Nigeria with not a day of schooling, not even Islamic schooling, they've been left out. The numbers are unbelievable. Can you imagine what you have to do is just really do the numbers. I can assure you this is not an exaggeration. The distinction between northern Nigeria and southern Nigeria is very clear. It's like two countries. Yeah, it often feels that way. And you can look at the numbers in terms of education. And this is not about Western secular education, Islamic education, any type of education, particularly education for girls. There are some states in northern Nigeria, we have to call it what it is without any fear of contradiction. There are some states in northern Nigeria, as we speak, as I speak right now, only about 4% of girls between the age of 6 And 13, 14, no more than 4 or 5% have any type of schooling. Wow. Any type of schooling. Islamic schooling or Western secular schooling. No schooling at all. Huh. Right? Wow. Well, that's. Bernou? Huh. Adamawa? Sokoto. You can the list goes on and on and on. Right. It's uh, I, 
the, the num- do you see the point? So, yeah. So but- in, in a way, this is this. These are the things we need to. We, you know, it's about it's about a new consciousness. Hmm. We have to. We have to do the work. Hmm. We have to get the numbers. We have to do the scholarship, do the research. We have to do the writing. We have to do the same kinds of things that you're doing now. You have a full-time job, but you do this. We right. need young people to lead. We need those think tanks. They don't have to be grand. They can be small to get the numbers, to crunch the numbers. <laughs> so because the point I'm making is, if we're not educating young women, girls. Mm-hmm. Now you tell me how we will not have objection for their children. See what's mm-hmm. happening with these girls, and people don't like to talk about this. Many of these girls, by the time they're 15, 16, mm-hmm. they're now wife number three or four. Right. To men old enough to be what? Their fathers, sometimes their grandfathers. Yes. We have to call it what it is. We have to. We have to call it what it is. Right? Hmm. I mean, you, when you said what you said, I don't want to go there. <laughs> you, you know what I mean. But you said it. So once you've said it, the genie is out of the bottle. We have to engage it. Yeah. We have to engage it. So these are the kinds of questions, right? Objection is a real thing. Objections have consequences, but they also have causes, huh. right? They're not something created by God. They're made by man and woman, by right. us as human beings, which means also if we want to get rid of it, we can do it too. Right. Yeah. Huh. They're very much, they come out of a particular process, out of a particular process. Huh. And, and, and I'm right. They're very much the world that we've essentially envisioned and created. So now, tell me how a new Biafra will not flourish when many young people feel left out. Yeah. So, so you can imagine how weird irredentist misguided ideologies and doctrines can now what exploit the emotions and sentiments of these young people hmm. into some kind of a fiction of a Biafra. Right. And something we went through what over a generation ago yeah. that led to utter disaster. Yeah. To be true, to be sure. I mean to be sure. People have a right to envision whatever world they want to live in. Yeah. Right? Yeah. That's not the point. You can envision, you can envision any kind of a national project. So they'll do our people can envision their own world of being whatever. Right. The elder people can do this. People certainly can do this. The Arewa people can do this. Everybody can do this. In the north of Nigeria, the Salafi can do this. The Kadiriyas and the Sanusias and the Tijaniyas can do this. They can do whatever they want to do. You know what I mean? They can have all these sectarian tendencies. But the reality is at the end of the day, they tend to come out of something we know so well. They come out of a politics of discontent. Hmm. And the politics of alienation. Right. That is essentially, they come out of the contradictions of the nation state, by and large. 
So we, we want to understand them, not as something coming from the outside. So Boko Haram is not something being made by uh, Al-Qaeda of the, uh, of the Maghreb. Right. No. Okay. It's not being it's not being foiled by ISIS. No. Some American guy somewhere may want us to believe that's what's going on, you know, right. because it fits into their larger project of the war on terror. Right. Boko Haram is coming out of the inner belly of the contradictions of Nigeria and mm. the power structure of Nigeria. It's inherently a Nigerian problem. It is inherently a Nigerian problem out of a Nigerian contradiction. Mm-hmm in which the questions of the politics of religion and identity is deeply rooted in the power politics of Nigeria, right? So by, by virtue of that dynamic, militant Islamicists, number one, are raising questions about the legitimacy of the Nigerian state, but they're yeah. doing more than that. They're also raising fundamental questions about the conspiracy of their own Muslim rulers in northern Nigeria with a new patrimonial Nigerian power structure. Yeah. If you see what I'm... So they're not just simply railing against Christians. Yeah, they're railing against... They're Christian minorities. They're doing that too. Against their own... But guess what? They're also railing against Sokoto and hmm. the Sultan of Sokoto. Right. And the Emir of Khan and all the Emirs. Perhaps even they're, more so. They're, they're drawing on new Salafi you know, Sunni orthodoxy to question, right, the religious practices of Sufi Kadiriyas and Tijaniyas who govern northern Nigeria. So before Boko Haram, in another era, we had what Mai Tai in the 1980s. The British had to confront Neil Mahaktid at the turn of the 20th century. But one thing they always do, they always what? They tend to what? Do well. They tend to thrive, they flourish in times of great social, economic, and political instability. When many, many young people are left out. That much we know. So Boko Haram came out of the frustration of the Sharia crisis at the turn of the 20th century. Mm. Its leader, Yusuf Muhammad, who was executed by Nigerian security forces in 2009, wrote out his manifesto before Boko Haram became this extreme French militant vicious organization that we now know it to be. So these are the kinds of questions in education we need to engage. I don't want to go on and on and on. So, so it, it, you know, anyway, I'll, I'll leave it at that. All right. I, I think we've, we've talked enough for <laughs> five days, right? <laughs> well, I think I've, I've been enjoying the conversation. Can you give me a break now? Uh, well, well I, I'm about to. I was actually going to ask my... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, you know what? I, I actually don't think you need the break. I think, um, I think you're enjoying this as much as as much as I am. Uh, you 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 want me to believe that I'm enjoying it uh, as much as well. <laughs> well, I like to. You know, yeah, I, I I have to tell you that uh, 
at my age, you can only go so far. At some point, you have to you have to call it a day. Fair enough. Uh, yeah, this is what happens when you're when you're in your late fifties, pushing sixty. You can't you can't do that marathon anymore. Well, right? I, I understand. So you're you're still you're still fairly you're still very young. Uh, <laughs> have a good fifty yeah. or so. You're about halfway through life. That's all. No, no problem. Well, I said you're only about halfway through life. Well, uh, from your mouth to God, sir. <laughs> how about that? Yeah, <laughs> that we all stay healthy and, uh, and yeah. happy. All right. And uh, all our loved ones, that'd be nice. Yeah. All right, sir. So I, I do have one final question to you, and okay. it, it, it might Very be good. having you uh, rehash a little bit of what you've said before, but it's a question I, I like to ask just about everybody who comes on this podcast. And, uh, you know, I'd like you to tell us what your image of hope looks like, especially for uh, young Africans on the African continent. What What gives you hope that things will be better? Well, you know, I've already. Yes, you you have. Uh, a, take me back to what I almost just want to hear it again for my personal. <laughs> well, because I mean, you, you know, you, you don't want me to end on a. You know, with the thing is, I started on the more optimistic. Well, midway actually, because right. I'm I'm a realist. I'm not an optimist. I'm, I'm yeah. a realist. So I I think it's really very important to strike a balance. I'm very much a liberal okay. for those who pay attention to that kind of stuff. Okay. So, so the scale matters a lot. I mean, it's sort of swinging, and you have to really make sure that it's swinging properly. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a senior colleague of mine who is incredibly wise did mention to me that that Nigeria is just really a, an erratic pendulum. You know, the pendulum is just swinging whichever way. Yeah. I mean, I refer to Nigeria as a as a, a wonderful country that wobbles. Right. Yeah, so the question is not whether Nigeria will wobble from, you know, the question is how well or how badly is it going to wobble. Hmm. Anyway, and it's really in that metaphor of wobbling and a pendulum that I would like to 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 present this, this element of optimism. Okay. Right. And that I think, I hope is also realistic. So Africa, Africa will wobble, and Africa can be that pendulum, and that pendulum doesn't have to, it doesn't have to move the way we're used to its movement in in the more stable, more predictable (coughs) Western environment that you and I live in, right? Yes. Um, it's really about that notion of time, the question of time and space, hmm. right? That element of time, that the temporality of, of time, we need to, we need to be very keen in the ways in which we engage it as Africans, that we have to really conceive of our own notion of time. Hmm. And not allow a Western notion of time to shape our reality and dominate our consciousness. It has for too long. I see. Um, so, so um, young Africans are now beginning to, you know, some young Africans, and you know, and they occupy different social spaces. They're not just simply affluent and socially mobile. Mm-hmm. They are they are 
finding spaces to innovate. I gave a couple of examples earlier, the big ones. Yes. The Nigerian film industry is the example that I like the most. Um, a new enterprise culture that I mentioned in finance is another case in point. Um, I am excited about what young women in southern Nigeria are doing. Yeah. I wish we can see more in other parts of the country and other parts of Africa. Their energy is unbelievable. I am extremely um, encouraged by the spirit of our girls and our women in some parts of Africa. Yeah. I say this as a father. And as an uncle, that what the future of Africa resides in two fundamental areas, young people and girls and young women. Do this for me. And please, next time when you engage your audience and your guest. Okay. Engage them with questions that focuses on young people, but with an emphasis on gender and generation. Oh, I see. <laughs> and you can approach it from this perspective. The African societies that are doing well, I can assure you are the African societies where young women are obtaining some education. Where their ability, where their talent and ability has been encouraged and nurtured. Hmm. The African societies that are not doing well, here I'm saying not states, not countries, societies. And you will see that I'm not saying community either. There are qualitative distinctions there. Hmm. The African societies that are not doing well are the African societies where young women are not doing well. Hmm. So, I am optimistic, but I'm also a realist. I have hmm. to balance the two. Hmm. If we want Africa to do well, we have to unleash the creativity of our girls hmm. and our young women. We need to make sure that we give them what we give our young men and our boys. Hmm. We need to respect them. We need to celebrate them. We need to support them. We need to cherish them. Hmm. We need to do that. If we begin to do that, if we begin to do that, and the societies that are doing that, those societies are doing better and better and better. Huh. And this is really the story of the examples I gave earlier. The examples I gave earlier, they're very Nigerian examples because guess what? Nigeria is the African country I know best. Yes. And By the way, who studies a continent? <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> a continent is not a country. Right. I mean, nobody studies Europe. Right. right. 
or Asia, but people expect you to study Africa. Yes. Okay. Go figure. Anyway, uh, that's another story entirely. Right. And that's not to say that there are no comparative perspectives mm-hmm. that one can draw. So I've drawn most of my examples, my illustrations from Nigeria, because that's the country that I know best, the mm-hmm. one I've studied the most. I've studied other African countries, but that's the one I've studied the most. That's the one I. Um, that's the one I know very well. Because I tell people all the time, I dream in Yoruba. <laughs> I process all my ideas in Yoruba and then I transmit it. I've been doing it for a long time, so people don't quite know that mm-hmm. I'm doing it. Every single thing I say, I've already put, I, it, it, it connects in Yoruba, and I have to quickly translate it. I see. I am convinced I dream in Yoruba. As a matter of fact, I know I dream in Yoruba, not in English. Okay. Right. 
right? It, optimism is good when it's comparative, right? Because you can see what is what is um, meaningful, right. what is doable, what is achievable right. from what is just simply fantasy and feel good, <laughs> right? Right. So, and and you can do it, and the best way to do it is not really just simply to do it between two countries or between two two regions of the world, the West and the rest, for example, Africa and Asia, for example, okay. uh, you know, but rather to do it one Africa, or to do it between one African country, but to do it within one African country, huh. to draw the comparison within African countries, say, okay, what regions of Africa is doing well right. in one, what region of an African country is doing well and what region is not doing well? And then we look at the indi indicators of doing well, hmm. what, whatever that might mean. And we want to make sure that it's not, these are not indicators that are imposed on us. Doing well here is also that element of African well-being. So it's not just simply infant mortality or level of education or health. You know, although those things are extremely important, as right. I mentioned earlier, but there are other factors that are very African and mm -hmm. very human. So if we if we look at those things, we can now begin to say, guess what? Um, in in the modern age, it is not. There's no religion, in my view, that sanctions that a 12-year-old, a 13-year-old, 14-year-old should be married to a 50-year-old man yeah. as a third or fourth wife. Mm. Once you've done that, you've destroyed the life of that young woman yeah. and much of what her children's life. I mean, seriously, you know, I don't mm. care. We, we need to be able to have those kinds of honest conversations in the open yeah. and not sweep them under the rug. Yeah. It's, uh, huh. thank, thank you so much, sir. It's um, my pleasure. I, I, uh, that once again, uh, to all of my listeners, this has been uh, Professor Olufemi Vaughn. Um, we've had this fantastic conversation. I hope you've enjoyed it. This has also been your host, Akinade Adirile with Port Save Africa. Uh, thank you for listening. And Professor, thank you for coming on my podcast. I think uh, your insights and your wisdom and, and your uh, authenticity has been en enjoyed on this podcast. And um, I, I personally have a lot to think about. And I think uh, a lot of our listeners have to have have had paradigm shifts as well while they listen to this. And uh, thank you so much, sir. Uh, to my listeners, have a wonderful rest of your day. And uh, don't forget to like, share, subscribe, and tell all of your uh, acquaintances and friends about this podcast. Thank you. Bye. Tipo